I think the only common characteristic that all Greek music has is that there are people who play it who have decided that it's Greek. And it doesn't necessarily mean the lyrics are even in Greek. The historical Greek territories, places where Greek-speaking people who thought of themselves as, as Greek uh, have lived, straddles the entirety of the Eastern Mediterranean. So there's corners of the Greek world whose music has almost literally nothing in common with the music of some of the Greeks from the interior of Anatolia, a major minor. I think it's most helpful actually to think of the universe of Greek music in terms of geographical areas. So for example, the music of northern Greece along the borders with places like uh, Bulgaria and these, these countries, in many respects is almost indistinguishable from the music of Bulgarians who live on the, their southern border. Really, the only difference is the language they're singing in. The music of the Ionian Islands is very similar to a lot of Italian music. The mandolins, harmony singing, accompaniment with, with the guitar. Uh, the music of northwestern Greece, Epiros, is identical to the music of southern Albania, and so forth. And more to the point of the topic of today, the music of the Greek communities of eastern Thrace, let's say, is the same as the music from, of the Turks of Western Turkish Thrace and the music of the giant population of Greeks that lived in the urban centers of the Ottoman Empire, places like Izmir, Smyrna as we call it in Greek, or of course Istanbul, Constantinople, was indistinguishable from the music of Turks and Armenians and Sephardic Jews because they all played music together. They celebrated together the, all of the great orchestras, bands, recording artists of the pre-Turkish Republic period, the late Ottoman period, almost all of them were explicitly multi-ethnic, uh, pluralistic in both musical tastes and uh, their demographic makeup. So it's, it's a tremendously large universe of music. Music and diaspora have been two of our favorite subjects on the Ottoman History Podcast. And in our final episode of Season 9, we're exploring the vast universe of Greek music in the diaspora. I'm your host, Chris Grayton, in this interview with Panayotis League, an ethnomusicologist, musician, and assistant professor of musicology at Florida State University. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the history of Ottoman Greek music, its relationship to the music of non-Greek communities, and its transformation after the First World War with the exchange of populations between Turkey and Greece. Hellenic College Holy Cross is one of the largest Greek Orthodox seminaries and institutions of higher learning outside of Greece. It's tucked away on a hill in Brookline, Massachusetts, just a short drive from the center of Boston. This is what it sounds like on a cloudy day in June. I visited Hellenic College to meet with Paniotis League on one of his breaks from teaching in the Hellenic College summer sessions. So I grew up around people from the, the island of Kalimnos, which is in the Dodecanese, just a few miles from Bodrum, off the uh, resort town on the Aegean, southwestern Aegean coast of Turkey. So I grew up with this very particular musical tradition. I wrote my master's thesis on, on the music of that community in my the town I more or less grew up in in Florida, uh, which is a sponge diving community, Tarpon Springs. But I wanted to do something different for my dissertation research, and I, I've been living here in Boston for a decade or so, almost a decade, and had gotten to know a lot of people and was playing with a lot of musicians 
who were descended from refugees, Greek refugees from the Aegean coast of Turkey, from places like Alatsata, uh, right across from the island of Chios, and uh, from the island of Mytilini or Lesbos. Both people who are the, were de- the descendants of refugees who made that same crossing that, of course, we've been hearing so much about in the news of the last couple of years, that between the Strait of Mytilini to Lesbos, but also people of lesbian extraction who, for various reasons, economic or political, uh, their grandparents or great-grandparents came here in the teens and 20s. So Boston has a, there's a very high percentage of Boston's Greek community who are of Anatolian or Ottoman origin. Also, a lot of people from the Black Sea coast, the Pontians, yeah. Pontic Greeks, right? So I'd been spending a lot of time with this community. I was fascinated by their music, which to me was very exotic. My ideas of what it meant to be Greek and Greek music were very different from theirs. Um, and this is this is really the key. And you you mentioned this this idea of intercommunality or like aesthetic pluralism. When I would ask my friends uh, from Lesbos or or whose grandparents were from Lesbos, oh, play me something that you used to listen to as a kid that like is a great memory of you know your idea of Greekness. They were as likely, if not more likely, to put on an old seventy eight RPM recording of someone singing an improvisation in Turkish or Arabic or playing a, a dance form that was explicitly Turco-Arabo-Persian, than they were like a, the Greek island dances that I would have expected based on having grown up with islanders you know, from an island not too far away. So it quickly became clear to me that their idea, their practice, lived idea of what it meant to be Greek was referencing this world that in the, let's be honest, the relatively ethno-nationalist-influenced idea of modern Greek America uh, was very foreign. that fascinated me. So that led me to spend a lot of time with those communities, listening to their music, looking at their archives. They have a tremendous tradition of musical literacy. Uh, So a lot of notations, a lot of um, uh, written accounts of things, as well as spending a few summers doing field work in villages, the villages on the island of Lesbos, where my friends' uh, families had come from. So I spent a lot of time playing with musicians, doing interviews, attending festivals, and uh, what came out of it was my dissertation. Generations after the first migrations to the U.S., Greek music from the former Ottoman Empire doesn't just survive, it's alive and well. The focus of the music of the Dodecanese Islands, or at least the island of Kalimnos, like in a lot of music from Crete, is on improvised poetry. So people are paying very close attention because they want to hear the the song that you're making up and they repeat it back to you. And, you know, it's a, you know running jokes and gags and... Um, playing around with the social context. Um, A very informal, let's say, village style, very sophisticated, but a very village style of of musical performance. And what another thing that struck me 
um, about the Anatolian or Ottoman Greek musicians who I was uh, working with and playing with both in Greece and in the diaspora community here. And this holds true for both the for also the large Armenian community and whether they're from whether they came here from Arab countries or uh, Turkey. The degree of sophistication and attention to performative detail, whether or not they're on a stage, even if they're in the living room, there's just this real reverence for crafting an artistic performance. Um, and I think that's partly, I think that's a very, they're very clear uh, sign of the that heritage, that urban professional musical class of the late Ottoman Empire that these people are artistic descendants of. Uh, so that made a great impression on me. That married to that kind of rowdy, interactive, uh, jocular context of, uh, you know, musicians in this culture, jukeboxes, you know, that people come up and pay them and tell them what they want to dance and they do it. Um, but a lot of really clever musical jokes and references, like sly asides to the other musicians or knowledgeable dancers or singers in the audience who would get them because they, so many of them have this encyclopedic knowledge of historical recordings or the way, you know, some t some great Turkish violinist used to play this this piece or that kind of thing. Ottoman Greek music from what is now the Republic of Turkey is only one subset of the Greek musical tradition. But it's one of the subsets of Greek music that has traveled most widely over the past century. Although parts of modern Greece became independent as early as the 1830s, more than a million Greek Orthodox people lived in what is now Turkey right up until the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1923. Greeks were vital to the Ottoman music scene, and a key feature of Ottoman Greek music was its intercommunal character. It was inseparable from the musical traditions of the other ethno-religious communities residing in the empire. Perhaps we can start in opposition to communalism, like defining ethnic or regional or personal identity in opposition to other groups that have distinct bounded uh, identities. So intercommunality, in the, the, the way that I use it and a lot of scholars of the Ottoman world talk about it, is this the guiding ethos of the, not just the urban, but the primarily um, urban pluralistic Ottoman world, where there was a recognition, both a tacit and a, a vocal practiced recognition by all the different ethnic and, and, uh, and religious groups of the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims, Christians, Jews, Turks, Greeks, Armenians, whatever you want to call them, and other groups, of course, that in order for the society to function in a way that was mutually beneficial to everyone, boundaries had to be porous, necessarily. Social boundaries, artistic boundaries. Of course, some boundaries are less porous than others, especially ones relating to... Um, joining of families, you know, marriage and this kind of thing. But, but those were often porous as well. So the idea is that it was, it was in everyone's best interest in terms of the continued prosperity uh, and flourishing, not only of their own ethno-religious group, but the larger town or city that they, or, or you know, in the, on the global scale, the, the empire that they belong to, that everyone, to a great degree, leave each other be in ways that were convenient and according to laws and societal norms. So there's a lot of give and take. Looking back, one might be tempted to see this culture as in some way hybrid. But that's a reading that only makes sense in a post-Ottoman context. We can all think of some musical experience that we've had or we have daily uh, that 
in one way or another originates in some group that we don't necessarily identify with in terms of our ideas about where we come from genetically or culturally, but still a big part of our lives. And in the realm of music, there's spectacular examples. My personal favorite, because it also touches on the religious, the supposedly bounded ritual world of religion, one of the most, and this is appropriate to mention since we're here at Hellenic College and Holy Cross, which is one of the the largest uh, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox um, theological schools outside of Greece, one of the most beloved composers of, of Byzantine liturgical music, uh, Petros Peloponnesios, Petros Labadarios, who was, he was one of the head chanters of the uh, ecumenical patriarchate in Istanbul. He was also one of the most renowned and respected composers of uh, Mevlevi music, liturgical music, and he was one of the, the in his time, one of the Ottoman Sultan's uh, court composers and court performers. So he very comfortably straddled that line and probably also sang and composed secular music as well. Greek Orthodox chants influenced the Sufi music of so-called whirling dervishes that have become a symbol of Turkey's musical heritage to the world. And the Turkish popular music of Ottoman cities quickly found its way to nightclubs in New York thanks to Greek immigrants and other people from the Ottoman Empire. Generations later, those melodies survive wherever the Ottoman diaspora is to be found. And at the beginning of the 20th century, the intercommunal music scene of the Ottoman Empire wasn't just intact, it had never been more vibrant. In many ways, it was just coming into its own with the rapid growth of Mediterranean port cities. However, Ottoman Greek music would follow a radically different trajectory due to the political conflicts of the First World War and its aftermath, which culminated in a diplomatically negotiated exchange of populations between Turkey and Greece. So when we say the population exchange, which I personally, I hate this term, I think it's an absolutely perverse and cruel mockery of the real kind of exchanges between populations that were happening for centuries before the tragic event, but that's, it's, it's what we call it. So after the, uh, when the Ottoman Empire was, um, the writing was on the wall and the, the Western powers were intervening in various ways to play their cards and uh, get the biggest pieces they could of, of the pie that was about to be cut up after the First World War. Uh, one of the things that happened was the Greek army and the Greek armed forces invaded uh, the western coast of Turkey, occupied a lot of the large urban areas, uh, particularly Izmir, with plans of annex- annexing all these lost these lost former Byzantine territories, that what we call Megali there, the great idea of enoshi, sort of unification of all the former Greek lands. The Turkish forces withdrew into the heart of Anatolia. The Greek army uh, was encouraged unwisely to follow and try to stamp them out once and for all. One of the many instances of, in history of this kind of thing going very badly. They were roundly, soundly defeated by Kemal Ataturk's uh, forces and expelled from, uh, they fled from, from Anatolia. Various 
things happened. A lot of atrocities were committed by both sides, by all sides. One of the 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 most um, painful event, or the emblematic event from the, the Greek point of view of this series of uh, events was the burning of the city of Izmir or Smyrna, which was a majority non-Muslim city, huge Greek. Armenian Jewish population, um, and a very large number of, of people died on all sides, but particularly uh, the the Christian inhabitants of the city. And that event has come to has come to stand for this what we call the the great catastrophe in Greek, imegali catastrophe, that the loss of quote unquote Hellenism, Asia Minor Hellenism, the the millennia old Greek presence. So uh, in at the peace talks at uh, Lausanne in uh, Switzerland. In my opinion, and I think the opinion of a lot of his historians of the region and of uh, this this time, uh, a very misguided there was a misguided attempt to solve these kind of problems that were supposedly based on religion. And so the idea was all of the Ottoman, all of the Christians, Orthodox Christians residing in Turkey would be quote unquote repatriated to Greece, and the Muslims in Greece would be repatriated to Turkey, with some exceptions of certain populations. This was a tremendous disaster. It was a humanitarian disaster. Uh, it made worse the already existing humanitarian disaster, which was a consequence of the, the Second Greco-Turkish War. And it was, a, uh, it was a deeply traumatic experience for everyone who were, like anyone who's a refugee, who's uprooted from where they're from. Um, it had an effect, of course, in Turkey, Every human life has equal value, and many people's lives were irrevocably changed. And, but it, in a in a giant country with such a large population, the percentage of of uh, people whose lives were affected was much smaller. However, in Greece, the population of Greece increased overnight, almost literally overnight. By um, I, I can't off the top of my head say the percentage, but there were something like a million and a half refugees who right. flooded into Greece. It completely changed the face of the nation, particularly urban areas like Athens and and uh, and Thessaloniki. Now, in terms of what this did to music, it was absolutely it was tremendously destructive. It des it destroyed ab this vibrant, not completely destroyed, but it it uh, in many ways crippled this remarkably vibrant intercommunal, as I said, pluralistic world of of free cultural exchange, musical ideas, and this great economy of, of artistic production and transferred it to many places around the Eastern Mediterranean. But it, it did have uh, a lot of creative consequences as tragedies often do. So uh, the most, the example that springs most readily to mind, as you mentioned, was this genre that we've come to call Rebertica, which in a simplistic way, we can say the continuation, the urban kind of, uh, you know, continuation of these, the, the uh, continuation of this Ottoman urban music in urban centers in Greece by people who all of a sudden found themselves living in refugee camps or in slums. A lot of people who used to used to play at the courts of local dignitaries and this kind of thing. Um, the emblematic instrument of this genre, the buzuki, of course, it's such a beautiful, as many people have pointed out, it's such a beautiful uh, emblem of, of this world of modern Greek artistic culture because it's a it's a hybrid instrument. It's based on long-necked, bull-backed Eastern Mediterranean lutes with a Western-style and Italian-style mandola neck stuck on it, and it bears a Turkish name, Bozuk, broken, 
refers to bro- different attuning systems. Um, so it was an absolutely catalytic event for modern Greek popular music, for sure, the urban popular music of Greece. I mean, you can barely hear any, even pop, like Western style or Euro style pop songs made by Greek artists uh, that don't have at least implicit tonal or, or, or metrical in the, in the lyrics or uh, timbral, the sound of instruments or the uh, references to, to that genre and that world of, of Asia Minor. Ottoman Greeks arrived in Greece with an entirely new culture that would forever change the country's music. But the initial reception of this culture in Greece was ambivalent at best. To the best of my knowledge, the initial reception by Greek or Athenian society at large was not a very warm one. I mean, these were people whose physical presence, and by extension their sounds and their smells and their language, were a painful, a stark painful reminder of the utter humiliation that the Greek nation had just gone through, being defeated you know, had I mean, you, you can even imagine from the perspective of someone who had grown up with this idea of the dream of reuniting all of Greekdom, and to taste it, to see, to read in the newspaper that we've taken back Smyrna, the the Greek army is is in Constantinople, right, the Second Rome, and then all of a sudden, just a few months later, this terrible tragedy, human human and political tragedy from that point of view, had happened. It was, they were absolutely, uh, they were treated very terribly. They were discriminated against in horrendous ways. Some didn't speak Greek as their first language, right? Because they came from parts of Anatolia where people were speaking Turkish. Absolutely. In fact, there are, there's a, the community of Greek Americans in New Haven, Connecticut, um, a big percentage of them uh, were monolingual Turkish speakers from the interior of Anatolia. I mean, imagine what it must have been like for those people to get off the boat in in Athens, supposedly to be reunited with their their cultural kin and to be treated like you know, like like trash, and and then finally make make their way here. So their music at first also was not very well received. Um, we tend to view we when I say we, I mean the musicians and artists and scholars who are interested in this in the Greek music of that time. We tend to view the artistic product of those refugees. In, through this, you know, sepia-toned, you know, romantic haze, because they produced amazing music. A lot of most uh, the great uh, the balance of the recordings that we have and the photographs that we look at of artists like uh, Panagiotis Tudas, Rosa Eskenazi, one of the great voices of the Greek Ottoman tradition, even though she was a Turkish-speaking Sephardic Jew. Um, people like that. Those were made in Athens and in and other places in Greece after the the population exchange. So we tend to imagine it as this conti- this lively continuation. On the one hand, this continuation of that world, the sophisticated artistic world that they had been kicked out of. And on the other hand, this romanticized kind of like tough guy, you know, underworld, you know, hash den, running from the police, playing, you know, this kind of thing, which both of those things were real. But I think the reality, people moved rather fluidly, I think, between those. And we must not forget that people like 
Rosa Eskenazi and all of her contemporaries, they were singing these songs about being a refugee, about being destitute, about drugs, about knife fights. They're also doing these amazing improvisations on classical Ottoman poetry, but they're also singing tangos and waltzes, and they were doing all those things in, in, in Turkey. Let's take a minute to enjoy a few selections of music from that first generation of singers who came with the exchange of populations. Right, this is one of my favorite, absolute all-time favorite recordings from the post-catastrophe era. This is uh, what what we would call in Greek a manes or a, a gazeli, so like an in a vocal improvisation on a poetic form, on a couplet, a rhyming couplet in the Greek language. Um, it was recorded by the legendary Rita Abadzi, who was, who was born in Asia Minor around 1914 and came to Greece as a refugee, as a child. Um, and it, it's one of the most heart-rending uh, performances that we have from that era. The lyrics say, Prepi na skeftete kanis tin ora tu thanatu, ote thabi sti mavrigis ke sfini tonomatu. So one must always bear in mind the hour of death, that he will enter into the black earth and his name will be erased. So I've always thought it thought of it as such a, a fitting uh, reminder of what those people went through and that they were able to produce such extraordinarily beautiful and virtuosic art, even in the in the literally in the shadow of the catastrophe. So this is Rita Abadzi, nineteen thirty-four, Gazeline Vasabach.
Sakishurita Moon. So this is one of the all-time great Asia Minor Greek uh, dance songs recorded by uh, Rosa Eskenazi, who is a Turkish-speaking Sephardic Jew who came to Greece with her family uh, as a child. Um, this is a song that was written by her longtime partner, artistic partner, Panagiotis Tudas, who himself was born in, in, uh, in Izmir, a great songwriter and, and producer. It is a karsilamas or karshlama dance, so a face-to-face couple dance called Vimitrulamu, uh, and it's uh, when Rosa Eskenazi was quote-unquote rediscovered in her old age. This was one of the uh, emblematic songs that she performed on, on Greek media. <laughs> Yo la gota pasmena, tapliro no ya 
way that we think about it now and the way we practice things, these things now is very different because there was a large period of time where that music was very socially unacceptable, um, to, especially to young Greek musicians working in Greece. I mean, it was, um, I think it would have been politically a, an extraordinarily radical act for a young Greek person from Athens or Thessaloniki in the 70s to decide, hey, I want to study Turkish classical music. Some people did, and um, they met with a lot of resistance. Now, there are literally hundreds of talented young musicians throughout Greece who, what their primary musical activity is playing the classical music of the Ottoman world or things that are offshoots from it. They spend time in Istanbul and other places. They go to seminars to learn. And there's a lot of people in the U.S. too um, who are of Greek descent or who aren't who really consciously identify with the artistic ethos of, of, of that time uh, in that way. I would also say that the communities of people who actually are descended from refugees from that time, like uh, Armenians, like I said, people of Black Sea heritage or people from the Aegean coast of Turkey, they also, in my experience, are interested in that art, art music world, but they've by and large grown up in this community that, for the most part, even in instances where the language has disappeared, where people don't really speak Greek comfortably or don't speak Turkish, they still, from earliest childhood, have have entertained themselves with the same kind of dance uh, and music forms that, that people did a hundred years ago. And so it's a very, very intense, very important part of who they are. Ottoman Greek music was already diasporic in a sense when it came to Greece, but it made itself at home there. However, as Ottoman Greeks increasingly left for other places beyond Greece, like the United States, their music entered into communal contexts where Greeks from many different places occupied the same space in cities such as Boston. There is a, or maybe a couple different common Greek-American cultural identities that have to do with performing arts, music, and, and songs in particular. So people who think of themselves as Greek-American, particularly if they're involved at all in the life, the social life of the Orthodox Church, but even if they're not, most people have a common understanding of particular sounds that are Greek. And it's not just buzuki music, and it's not just, uh, you know, urban, like, rebetika and post-war, rebetika and pop music, things that, you know, pop stars have, have sung. I mean, there's a lot of elements of music, of island music, you know, traditional island music, like the stuff I grew up with, that are mainstream, part of the Greek-American identity through dances that you learn, you know, at a church festival or whatever. There's a lot of explicitly Asian minor music that is part of that, too. But on the other hand, uh, Greeks, because Greek is such a large and varied, culturally diverse place, um, people tend to have very distinct regional identities. Linguistically, that's certainly the case. Okay, in the American context, by the time you get to the third generation or so, that maybe is not such a big deal, aside from certain words. Uh, but in terms of music and dance, it's a very big deal. Like at the very beginning, I was talking about you know uh, these tremendous differences. And even in America today, especially in big urban areas with a lot of Greeks, like in Boston, in New York, in Chicago, each regional group, cultural group, has its own, at least one, sometimes many, own social clubs that do their own events with, that f bring musicians from their part of Greece and try to you know, cook that kind of food. They try to encourage the use of that dialect of the language. Um, so there's a lot of give and take um, between the two. In the specifically Anatolian Greek context, my impression is that that's a little less because there is no homeland left to go to, to, to renew connections with family members who are still there with, to bring music. You can't bring a musician from your community from Alatsata because Alatsata isn't Alatsata anymore. It's a, it's a, it's a town in Turkey. Um, 
with places like Lesvos, it's a little different. Of course, Lesvos is still there, but those kind of communities, I've, I've noticed that the Anatolian Greek communities are less focused on that kind of thing, with the exception of the Black Sea people, the Pontians, who, but that's another case because they speak a different, a radically different dialect of Greek and have extremely different musical and cultural traditions uh, that most other Greeks have trouble relating to or participating in. I think the only common characteristic that all Greek music has is that there are people who play it who have decided that it's Greek. And it doesn't necessarily mean the lyrics are even in Greek. We've listened to so much great music on this season of Ottoman History Podcast. And we're finishing off our ninth year of recording with one more song featuring none other than our guest, Panayotis League. Is from a recording a CD that I did with the great Kalimnian violinist Michalis Kapas, as well as a wonderful singer, Irini Karavokiru. Uh, this is an instrumental dance. It was typical of the repertoire that was being played on islands like Kalimnos off the coast of Turkey in the early 20th century. And this is called, and I love the name because it's an explicit reference to the urban musical in- environment of uh, Asia Minor and how it's continued in folk traditions in the Greek islands. It's called, it's called Sarki Sirto. Sharka, the Turkish word Sharka, means like an urban, like an art song. Um, so this is a Sirtos dance, a village-style dance that bears the name uh, Sarki. So this is uh, the great Michalis Kapas playing violin and myself playing Lauto, the steel string Greek lute from a record that we released a few years ago called um, Traditional Music and Songs from Kalimnos. For more on this subject, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You'll find links to all the music used in this episode. You heard multiple selections from an old record called Greek Island and Mountain Songs, released by the Royal Greek Festival Company. You also heard a number of recordings of old 78 RPM records, including releases on Canary Records provided by our friend Ian Nagoski. There were also a few more contemporary recordings, a live performance of traditional Greek Smyrnaica music from Massachusetts by Sofia Bilides and her ensemble from the Library of Congress, as well as the music of Petros Peloponnesios recorded by the Encordes Ensemble and the Nihavend Semai of Petros Peloponnesios 
performed by George Alevisios on the Cretan lute and Gina Kali on the bendir. Of course, that last clip you heard was from the album Traditional Music and Songs from Kalimnos. I'm Chris Grayton. Thank you for staying with us throughout the past year of podcasts. Special thanks to our editors-in-chief over the course of Season 9, Susanna Ferguson and Sam Dolby, as well as the rest of the Ottoman History Podcast team and our many guest contributors. We'll be taking a short break, so you'll have plenty of time to catch up on anything you missed over the course of Season 9. But we'll be back this summer, and we hope you'll join us for what will be our 10th year of Ottoman History Podcast, beginning under the very unusual conditions of a global pandemic. We hope that all of you and yours are well in these difficult times, and we want you to know that we'll be here for you, whether you're just bored out of your mind under lockdown, or when you finally do get to take that long flight or road trip that has been delayed by the current crisis. That's it for now. Take care, everyone, and stay tuned.